morning, Southbridge. Good morning, Theater 14. We are continuing today our series entitled Four, talking about what we are for as followers of Jesus Christ, as sometimes identified born-again Christians or evangelical Christians. What are we for? Because oftentimes we become very popular, maybe even famous, for what we're against, whether that's political movements, whether that's certain things that we want to protest, hold up picket signs for, whatever the deal is, we're oftentimes known for what we're against. So what are we for? We've seen the New Testament Jesus and the Apostle Paul both phrase the Ten Commandments in a positive way. They say, to love God, to love your neighbor. And ultimately, that's for the glory of God. And that's what this series has been about. And so we want to welcome you if you're new here. Um, and we're for you. Uh, we want to love you. We want to treat you well. If you are a guest, if you're in Theater 14, if you're here in Theater 9, we would love to give you a gift today. And uh, would love for you to just be able to get a way of saying thanks for showing up at the movie theater. And uh, we, we are so thankful for you and that you would take the time to come get to know us a little bit and then Lord willing have an encounter with the living God. We ask you to do one thing for us if you don't mind um, while you're here this first time or maybe you were here last week for the first time and you didn't fill out a connection card. We ask you to fill out a connection card. It's in your worship program. If you received one of those you can go ahead and start doing it right now. What we do is we take those connection cards. You turn it in. We give you a gift. It's out at the first time guest kiosk on your way out. When you're walking out the front of the theater on your left you go over there and uh, we'll give you a, a coffee mug and some more information about the church if you haven't already received that and then also we're going to take that connection card and make a donation to a ministry, Women at Risk International, that rescues uh, women, children, sometimes men, but oftentimes women and children out of labor and sex slavery and puts them in a safe house. It costs $250 a month to keep one woman in a safe house for a month. There she hears about the love of Jesus Christ and her life can be changed as well. And so if you turn that card in today, um, we'll make a donation on behalf of that card. And then also while some folks are filling that out, I want to invite each one of you this Friday night uh, to Secret Church. It's going to be a follow-up, really, from last week's message on sexuality. And so we're going to spend six hours studying the scriptures, and it's going to be from uh, 7 p.m. until 1 a.m. at the church office. It's going to be led by David Platt, the author of the book Radical, and we're going to be video simulcasting him here to the office. It's going to be hosted by one of our leaders, Brad Altice, and uh, he's going to be out at the connections table for sign-ups for that. You can also go to our website, southbridgefellowship.com, and sign up for that. Purchase your study guide. Study guides are $6.50. It's about 150 pages, though, and uh, we'll be covering all that that night. I'd love to have you come and be a part of that. And then also, so, men, all right, men, elbow-wise, elbow do what you need to do right now. Men, love to see you on Tuesday night. We're going to have a fearless forum at the church office. Uh, I'm going to be teaching at this one, and we're going to have a discussion uh, where we're going to start a conversation about our desires and the desires we have and why we don't have certain desires. And so we're going to be talking about that Tuesday night at the church office. And so come and find out some uh, more about what's going to happen at that by being there at that. There's a, a flyer inside your worship program as well that'll give you some info. Uh, but now we're going to jump into God's word. So let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you are greater than all things, that you are greater uh, than anything in this world, greater than any sin that entangles us. God, let us throw off all that stuff that entangles us and pursue your son, Jesus Christ. Father God, will you let us run a race and let it be worthy of the calling that you have on our lives. Father, you've done an amazing work in so many of our hearts. I pray that we would live worthy of that calling you have for us, that we'd be imitators of you, Father, that we'd be for the things that you're for and that it would be seen, that our lights would shine in this world in such a way that this would become a city on a hill as a result of lives, lives that are changed. Will you change some here today, please? Save people, change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as we get started this morning, I need you to use your imagination with me. I want you to imagine that after church today, somehow, in some way, you received $10 million. 
So some generous person that you go to church with walks up to you, <laughs> hang around and shake hands just in case this happens. Uh, somebody, you know, relative, has, I don't care what the scenario is, but you get $10 million after church today. What are you going to do? Think about what you could do. You could go on vacation. <laughs> Forget vacation. You could buy a small island, right? $10 million. You'd never have to work again. You could pay off debt. You could pay off the house. Maybe you get some bill, medical bills. Maybe you'd help somebody else. Maybe you'd give some away. What would you do with $10 million? You don't even have to work again if you don't want to. What would you do? Set up a foundation? Think about it. If somebody just handed you $10 million, what would you do? And then here's a follow-up question. Could you give it all away? 100%. I don't mean could you tithe on it and give a million dollars to your church. I don't mean you'd set $5 million aside for all those new friends that you're about to have. I don't mean any of that. I mean, could you give away 100% of, t- if somebody hands you $10 million right after church today, could you give it all away? And if not, you don't have to answer me. Just answer in your own heart. I want you to this be a heart exercise. If not, why not? What's the struggle there? I read an article this week about a couple in Canada that actually won the lottery, and in American currency, it equaled $10.9 million. They've given away 98% of it. They haven't bought one thing. Isn't that crazy generosity? I met a guy about four weeks ago who worked a good job, got paid well in his job regularly, but in one year made $40 million. He didn't make a million dollars a year on a regular basis. He made $40 million in one year and to date has given away 91% of it. Isn't that crazy generosity? Now, how in the world do people do that? Well, you might think to yourself, well, they must have so much already that that it's just like another number to them. It didn't really matter. And if I had 40 million, I'd give away 40 million too. It's not that big of a deal. The couple in Canada, the guy was a retired welder, lives in a 147-year-old house. He's given the money to churches in his community, fire departments, different places. And basically what he said is, I have enough. I don't need anything. Isn't that a crazy spot so foreign to our culture, so foreign to our minds? And I don't even know if he's a Christian. He didn't buy one thing for himself. And then the guy that got the $40 million, when you get to know him a little bit better, he shares a story with you. He said the reason why it was not a problem to give away the money, and he hasn't given the whole thing away yet, but in the process of giving away the $40 million, is because when he and his wife first got married, they made a commitment. They were going to give away 10% of their income. They were going to tithe. And he said, and at that time, we lived in a shack where you could see through the wall. (laughs) Literally, lived in a shack. And so he said, we started tithing then. Then we also made a commitment that every year after that, we would increase our giving percentage-wise. And so dollar amounts change, and some years are tight and all that stuff. And so it didn't mean it always go from like 10 to 11. Sometimes they'd raise it by like a quarter percent or whatever it is, but they would raise, increase their generosity by a percentage every year. So now they're at 91%. Isn't that crazy? And see, most people would say, well, give me $40 million, and we'll just kind of test me, God, and see if I'll do it. No, they were faithful with little, and so now they can be faithful with much. Now, what if you were given 10 Could you give it all away? I mean, you didn't do anything to earn it, right? Somebody just handed it to you after church. Why would it be so hard to give away? That's really a hard exercise to think through whether we struggle with what we currently have. Are you for generosity? Because today we're going to talk about how God is for generosity. We're going to be back in the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, please turn there with me. Exodus, and we're going to be looking at chapter 20. And I'll start reading a verse 1 to give us some review. But what we've been talking about, if you haven't been with us, have been the Ten Commandments. These oftentimes rules that we talk about, they didn't just drop down from the sky. And if you've gotten nothing out of the series so far, I hope you'll remember this in like six or seven weeks. These didn't just happen in isolation. They happened in a context of a relationship. So you don't obey the Ten Commandments to get God to love you more. You don't obey the Ten Commandments so that all of a sudden you'll have a relationship with God. These were given to people who already had a relationship with God. See, they've been in bondage for hundreds of years. 
And then God led them. By his grace, he chose them, and he led them out of bondage into freedom. And he's been guiding them. He's been providing for them. He has a relationship with them already. And now he's going to talk to them about how to live in this freedom. You've got this newfound freedom. I didn't set you free from bondage. You could have more bondage. I'm going to tell you how to live the free life. And it's a life where you're my people and you represent me. So I want you to be for what I'm for. And he speaks to them. And it's an intense scene. See, a holy other transcendent and righteous and sinless God is going to come down to the earth. He's going to descend to the earth. The earth doesn't know what to do with that. And so the earth starts to shake. And there's this trumpet sound that gets louder and louder. And there's thunder and lightning and smoke. And God speaks. And it's terrifying and it's majestic. And listen to what he says. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's a God who's for freedom. And when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. It's for freedom that you've been set free. There is no condemnation, amen? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he set you free, and it's not so you could have more bondage. And so now he's going to talk about how to live free. Here's how you live free. You shall have no other gods before me. Because any other God that sits on the throne of your life will inevitably lead you to bondage. It doesn't matter if it's your work. It doesn't matter if it's your spouse. It doesn't matter if it's your kids. It doesn't matter if it's money. It doesn't matter if it's sex. It doesn't matter if it's drugs. Whatever it is that you put in the controlling, the driving force of your life will lead you to bondage other than the one true God who's totally different. That's why he can be so exclusive. So you set no other God before you. I'm the God of freedom, and I want you to be free. And then he says this, you shall not make for yourself an idol. I'm for the real thing. Don't settle for substitutes. And he goes on to discuss that, what it looks like for him to be jealous and pursue us. Not because he's jealous of us, but he's passionately pursuing us because he wants us. He's for us. And when we don't do that, there's consequences. And when we do that, there's blessings. And then verse 7, he's for the fame of his name. As his followers, we wear the name of Jesus Christ. And he's for the fame and the glory of his name. And he says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And then verse 8, we have a unique command. It's the only one that's not repeated in the New Testament. It's about a day. He created the seven days. He blessed the Sabbath day, and there's a Sabbath day, and it was a special day that was set apart day. But he's not for a day anymore. In the New Testament, he's for rest. And so have you found rest in Jesus Christ this week? Soul rest, because he says to you, you come to me and I'll give it to you. And then in verse 12, we see that he's for honor. And now in verse 12, we start to talk about relationships we have with one another because the first four commandments are all about loving God. Now he starts talking about loving each other and he says, in that first human relationship you have with your mother and your father, you honor them so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament it's the first commandment with a promise. Verse 13, he's for life, you shall not murder. Verse 14, he's for sexual commitment. We saw last week, you shall not commit adultery. And then verse 15, our commandment this week, you shall not steal. And so for the past few weeks, we've had some pretty simple commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. <laughs> it doesn't get much more simple than this. In Hebrew, this is literally two words, never steal. <laughs> okay, wrap it up, we're good, right? But why? Why does he say don't steal? It's because he's for giving. Don't take because I'm for giving. It's part of his character. He's a generous God. And see, when you're for generosity, he's for generosity. That's why he's against stealing. And when you're for generosity, what you're for is you're for God's character. That's our first point. When you're for generosity, you're ultimately for God's character. And you think about what character is. And oftentimes we talk about people and they have characteristics. 
Maybe somebody's perpetually late. Maybe somebody's a generous person. Maybe somebody's tall. Maybe somebody's short. Maybe they're fast. Maybe they're slow. There's all kinds of things you might think of when you think of certain people. They're the characteristics of those people. And just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, I want to do something. I want some interaction from you, okay? I don't know what your church background is, but you're allowed to talk right now in just a minute. I'm going to say the name of a famous person. I want you to shout back to me the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? No filters. Filtration system, gone, okay? You shout back to me the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm going to say somebody. We'll start with an easy one. I'm going to say a famous person's name. You tell me what you think of. Ready? You're not even playing yet, right? Are you ready? All right, all right. You ready? Superman. Flying. Clark Kent. Double identity. Got it. All right. Man, strong. You know, I heard multiple things there. You're getting this. All right, let's try another one. Donald Trump. Money. Rich. Hair. All right. Got it. All right. Simon Cowell. Sarcastic. Critical. V-neck, somebody said first service. Hair again. At any rate. What about this one? Bernie Madoff. Crook. Overwhelmingly heard crook. All right, how about this one? Christian. Ooh, I'm not saying that, Pastor. You know, I'm, what popped in your mind when I said Christian? Love, that's a good one. Help, all right. How about this? Generosity. Was that on the radar screen? Anywhere? Top three? Five? Ten? If it was, that would actually be interesting, especially when you look at the facts. Let me tell you what some of the facts are. Evangelical Christians, on average, give less than 1% of their income away. Do you know what the average is for 20% of evangelical Christians, one in five, do you know how much money they give away a year? And I'm talking about not to their church, I'm talking about anywhere, like Salvation Army, guys ringing a bell, somebody, you know, police department calls your house when you're eating dinner and you're just trying to get off the phone with them, like whoever. One in five Christians give zero dollars a year. It's generosity. Really? That's interesting, especially when you consider in the study, and I know there, I can be more generous with the statistics. That what I read this week said 1%. I've read before 2 to 3% of their income. <laughs> it's still pretty mediocre when you consider the majority of those Christians attend a church. And so these are people that attend church regularly, attend an evangelical church that teaches that tithing, and that's giving 10% of your income, tithing, is the base level giving. See, a lot of times people argue about, do I have to tie them on net or my gross? Let's get rid of that argument real quick, okay? Uh, what the problem is with that argument is this. The premise is, how little do I have to do for God to be happy with me? Okay, that's not the discussion. God, this isn't about making God love you. Remember, this is a God that's for freedom, and so he's giving you guidelines for your own life. You wouldn't be controlled by your stuff. Here's a discipline for you. Give away 10%. It's before the law. It's repeated in the New Testament, and then you see it in the Old Testament. And so what you have here is forget, I don't care. Not gross, go with net. Okay, that's a good starting point. So what Dave Ramsey calls the training wheels of giving. Okay, this is, this is starting line stuff. This isn't finish line stuff. The majority of those people that give $0 a year or 1% of their income attend a church that teaches 10% of the, your income is the beginning point. So that's not even generous giving. That's the beginning point. And they give $0 a year? And then they say they'd follow a God who's a generous God, and they represent his character. See, it's contrary to God's character for him to steal. It's a characteristic of him to be a giver. In James chapter 1, verse 17, he says that every good gift comes from above. He's a giver of good gifts. So you think about what you have in your life that you consider good. You have a good family? It's a gift from God. You have a good marriage? It's a gift from God. Do you have good health? That's a gift from God. Do you have children? Those are a gift from God. Do you have a job? That's a gift from God. Do you have the ability to make money? That's a gift from God. 
Because you might say, I, I did it. I mean, I earned it. I worked hard. You don't understand the hours. And you got skills. Those are gifts from God. Business skills, gift from God. Sporting skills, gift from God. Numchuck skills, gifts from God. It's all a gift from God. Your breath is a gift from God. So he gave you the ability to make the money. It's all a gift from him because he's a giver, not a taker. He gives gifts to his children. In Matthew chapter 7, he says this. Matthew chapter 7 says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? You're not mean, are you? If he asks for a snake, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who gives good gifts, who's perfect, will he give good gifts to those who ask him? See, he's a giver of gifts. He's not a taker. Well, that's one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. Maybe if you were watching football yesterday, you saw it behind the field goal post, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He's giver. He's not a taker. And why did he give? So that you might have life. That whoever would believe in his son, Jesus Christ, would have eternal life. Life that starts here and now. That's the abundant life and lasts for all of eternity. So that you could have something that he already has. And he's giving to you. He is a giver, not a taker. And when we take, it's contrary to his character. And one of the ways we take is by failing to be generous. And God takes it seriously when we steal. And what is stealing? Base definition of stealing would be taking something that doesn't belong to you. Today we're going to use the definition of this. It's going after something that God's yet to provide. It's going beyond God's provision for you. You see it in the Garden of Eden. Remember Eve? Eve's in the perfect situation. She's got the perfect situation with her husband, perfect relationship, perfect relationship with God. She's in the perfect environment. They're probably, imagine the garden. Probably like, imagine how good the fruit is in the garden, like pomegranates. And I bet you they didn't even have vegetables. It was such a perfect place. You know, it was, it was, it was a great place. And, and, the, and the streams of water going through, crystal clear water. And the animals, they're not eating each other. They're getting along with each other. Isn't it crazy? And the work's not hard. You worked before the fall, but there, it wasn't hard work. And can you imagine a place where there's no arguments? There's no sin. There's no selfishness. There aren't any regrets from what you did last night or two weeks ago or any of that stuff. There's not a bunch of ethical dilemmas. There's no sin. And there's no guilt. And there's no shame. And there's no strife in this marriage. They were naked and felt no shame. Amen? Yeah, I don't know if I'm supposed to. <laughs> they felt no shame. What a crazy environment. And God had provided abundantly for them in this paradise-like place. But then there's another person that comes along as, as a serpent. He's the father of lies. Jesus describes him in the New Testament as one who comes as a thief to steal and kill and destroy. And he deceives Eve into thinking, but God hasn't provided everything for you. And, and if you just had this one thing that he didn't provide yet, then then you'd be happy. And so she longs for something that God's yet to provide, and she goes and she takes it, and then so does Adam, and you think God takes this stuff seriously? There's a curse on all of humankind. And now we know cancer, and now we know loneliness, and now we know abandonment, and now we know sin, and now we know natural disasters, now we know all this stuff because there's a curse, and now we work, and there's sweat, and now we give birth to children, and there's pain. And that's all as a result of the thievery that took place at the very beginning by the mother and father of all humankind. And this place isn't perfect. It's messed up, and so are our hearts. And so we do things that are contrary to God's character, and he takes that seriously. And the reason why he takes this so seriously, you see it's in the top ten of stuff that he lists. And, and it's an issue that contradicts his character. It's an issue of our hearts. And so the question for us is, do we do it? Do you steal? 
the majority of evangelical Christians will answer no. In fact, according to one Barna stat, 90% of evangelical Christians will say they never violate the Eighth Commandment. So do you? That's the question I asked myself while I was studying this week. So do I do this? And you start thinking through scenarios. So what does it look like to go take something that doesn't belong to me or to go beyond God's provision? What does that look like? So like robbing a bank, that would be bad. And so if you've done that, you violated the Eighth Commandment. Diamond heist, like Ocean's Eleven type deal, that'd be bad, you know, if we did, did that. Or, or breaking and entering, like, you know, if you just decided the neighbor's got a good picture and you break the window out and go in their house, take it and put it up in your house, you'd probably get caught. But anyway, uh, that, that'd be stealing. Uh, carjacking, that'd be stealing. How we doing? We good so far? Because we're about to have some fun. Think about some other stealing. Is it stealing if you say mom and dad left out a wallet and you took some money and they didn't know you took the money, maybe when you were a teenager? You ever done that? I have. Guilty. You ever lie to your parents about why you need some money? I just don't want to buy some stuff for my friends. <laughs> buy beer for my friends. Yeah, it's lying. It's also stealing. You ever done that one? I have. See, I'm guilty. I've broken the Eighth Commandment. Let me just keep going, thinking through some of these. Uh, do you ever download pirated music or software? It's got a copyright on it. Somebody's intended for that to be paid for, but you get it for free because you found like some website, and it's just because nobody else knows about this website right now. It's called stealing. Oh, pastor, you need to back off now. You're meddling. Go back to just read those verses. You know, leave me alone. All right, let me back off for a second. You ever done insurance fraud? You ever lie on insurance claims or lie to the person who's giving you your rates? So you get some. My father-in-law has a friend who actually, you know, most normal people, when they go to want to get equity out of their house, they sell it, they put it on the market. This guy hired somebody to blow it up. He hired this guy, he took his family on a little short vacation, hired a guy to go blow the house up. He didn't hire the right guy, though, because the guy went into the house, turned all the gas on, and just thought the house would blow up after he left. He goes out on the front porch, lights a cigarette, <laughs> dude ended up in the ditch, they got caught. See, some of us, we just never been caught, right? Do you ever lie on an insurance claim so you get a little bit extra money? Do you ever lie to the insurance agent so you can get a better rate? That's called stealing. You ever represent something as better than it actually is and you know you're doing that so that you can get more money for it? That's called stealing. How about at work? Do you ever steal time? Do you give 100% every day to your employer? Because they're paying you to do that. So you still take the money, right? But then you don't do 100% of work. Then that's called stealing. How about employers? Do you pay your employees what they're really worth or do you pay them what you think you need to so they don't leave? That's called stealing. What about this one? Malachi says when we don't tithe, we're stealing from God. <laughs> one in five gives zero. That's called stealing. So is anybody innocent? We can keep going. No one's innocent of this. And God takes this stuff seriously. And you know why God takes it seriously? Because we claim to be his followers, and it's contrary to his character. Think about how it's contrary to God's character. He can't steal. It's actually impossible for him to steal because it's all his. He created it. It all belongs to him. In Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, he says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You're his. In fact, if you read through the scriptures, you're doubly his. Because he created you, so you're his. And he gives you breath, and so you're his. But then in the New Testament, you see if you're redeemed, if you've trusted Jesus, he bought you at a price. So he purchased you back. You already belong to him, but he purchased you back. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. You're his. And so is everything else in the world. And so he doesn't need our money, he doesn't need our worship, he doesn't need our songs, he doesn't need us to meet here together today. In fact, Psalm chapter 50 talks about that. In Psalm chapter 50, he says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of a goat from your pen. So people would bring these sacrifices. I don't need that stuff. And look at what he says. For every animal of the forest, it's mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills, they're his. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. And then look what he says. Let me just remind you of who you are and who I am. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that's in it. 
I don't need you. And I don't need your tithes. And I don't need your worship. And I don't need your time. And I don't need your talent. And I don't need any of that stuff. Because it all belongs to me anyways. Therefore, it is impossible for me to steal. Haggai in chapter 2 says, the silver, it's mine. The gold, it's mine. God's not poor. He's not going broke, okay? He can put money in a fish's mouth if he wants to. It's not a problem. So it's not that God's trying to get into your wallet. It's God wants your heart. And we see in the New Testament, it teaches where our money is. That's where our heart is. And evangelicals, 20% give zero. And the average is 1% into the gospel. So we're 1% committed to the gospel, really? But it's all his. And it's contrary to his character to take something because what you're doing is exact opposite of something God can even possibly do. It's not even possible for him to do it. He created out of nothing. There was nothing. He spoke it all into existence. It all belongs to him. And it's his followers for us to then go take or then to go beyond provision. What we're doing is we're showing a lack of trust because what we're doing is we're saying, God, you haven't given me everything I need, so I'm going to go get it. And that might be with family. That might be with money. That might be with a spouse. And we'll dip into last week a little bit, talk about stealing. You lust after someone. You're going after something God hasn't provided for you yet. That's called stealing. You're breaking that commandment. You're breaking the adultery commandment. You're breaking the commandment that says set no other God before you because you're becoming God. You're settling for a false thing. You're breaking all. You break one, you break them all. And see, this one, it's a heart issue. Just like adultery. It's just like murder. It's a heart issue. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. He says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft. False testimony and slander. So way, way, way before we cheat on our taxes. Way, way, way before we decide to call in sick, but we're not really sick. Way, way, way before we decide to take money out of dad's wallet without him knowing. There's an issue of the heart. So we're thieves at our heart because we go after stuff God's yet to provide for us. And he's told us in the scriptures and Peter, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Does that mean you have everything everybody else has? Nope. That means you have everything you need for the life that God wants you to live in your circumstances and your sphere of influence. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you believe that? Because every time we go after something outside of that provision, we're showing the thievery, the burglary, the stealing in our hearts. And so is it there? I was listening to a story this week on YouTube, a guy named Nick Voikic, and uh, you can look him up and watch it yourself. It's a crazy story. He was born without arms and legs, so he grabs your attention right away. And he tells the story about when he was born from his dad's perspective. He said his dad, his dad was a pastor, he was in the delivery room with his mom, had his head down next to mom's head, and he peeked down and, and saw Nick's shoulder come out, and there was no arm attached to the shoulder, and his face went pale, and he didn't know what to do. He left the room. And his little boy got delivered, and then the doctor came out to talk to him. And he says, my boy, he's missing his right arm. And the doctor said, no, your boy doesn't have any arms or legs. And then he and his mom, they went into mourning at that point. The whole church, he said, was in mourning. Like, how could this happen to the pastor's son? Why did this happen? And they, they're honest about it. The parents are honest about it. It was a struggle. It wasn't easy. It wasn't immediate. But they came to the place where they realized God doesn't make mistakes. And so God has a plan for this little boy. They don't know what it is, but they believe that God's got a plan, and it's ultimately a plan that's going to bring God glory. And so they're nurturing, they're caring for this little boy. But it wasn't easy for Nick, because Nick has to go through the struggles of not having arms, not having legs, looking around at other people, thinking, God, why didn't you give me what you've given everyone else? And he tells in his story that at eight years old, he tried to commit suicide. Can you think about how terrible life has to be as an eight-year-old for you to want to take your own life? He said, 
asked my mom and dad just to lay me down on the tub, and I was just going to relax on the tub. And they left, and I rolled over, and I knew what I was doing. And he said, and he envisioned his own funeral, and how bad his parents would be mourning over this, and the guilt that would be heaped on them, like they didn't do enough, and because his parents loved him so much, he couldn't do that to them, so he didn't kill himself. It was the last time Nick tried to kill himself, but it wasn't the last time he'd struggle with not having arms or legs. And he said his dad's a pastor. He understood the gospel. He understood, God, I might not have peace in my heart without you. I might not be whole without you, but I am not following you until you tell me why. And he says, what I did is I looked and I wanted, why did you provide what you provided for everyone else, arms and legs, that you haven't provided for me? See what was going on in his heart? He wanted something God was yet to provide. And so he wouldn't believe in God because God didn't do what he wanted him to. He said when he was 15 years old, he's reading through the scriptures. He comes to John chapter 9. If you know John chapter 9, what happens is there's a man in that passage of scripture that was born blind. And Jesus gets asked the question, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Like who's paying the penalty here? And Jesus really blows them out of the water with their thought process. He says it wasn't because it was that. This man was born blind so that the works of God might be made known through him. And when Nick read that passage of scripture... It was like God breathed life into him. He breathed the gospel into him. That God had a plan for him that he was going to do. And part of the plan was he had no arms and no legs. And so he was so busy worrying about what he didn't have, he wasn't grateful for what he did have. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Now he's spoken, over the last six or seven years, he's spoken to crowds of about three million people. He says, conservatively, this is conservative numbers. It's not like somebody moved in the crowd, we counted the hand. This is conservative numbers. So 200,000 people have come to faith in Jesus Christ through him sharing his story and preaching the word of God. And he says he has, that, he has that platform because he doesn't have arms and he doesn't have legs. Would he trade arms and legs for 200,000 friends in the kingdom of eternity when he's going to have arms and legs anyways? And he said, how, ridiculous, how stupid would that be <laughs> to take an arm, to be whole on the outside and to be broken on the inside? What good is that? See, we all, though, don't we all want something? You see, someone else has something you don't have. It might be a job. It might be a position. It might be a car. It might be silly stuff, small stuff. It might be amount of money. It might be whatever, a relationship. It could be all kinds of things. And you go after that. You want something that they have because God hasn't given it to you. And so rather than trusting God with what he has given you and trusting God that he's given you everything you need to live the life he desires for you to live, you go after something else. It's thievery in the heart. So what's the answer? Buckle up. Try harder. Here's the rules. Obey the rules. You didn't do it, go pay back what you owe and then try and do it again. Pull your shoes. You can do this. No. That's not the answer. You know what the answer is? It's the gospel. The gospel's the answer to our heart issue. You see, the gospel doesn't just save sinners. It does that. It saves people. You believe on Jesus Christ. He gives you eternal life. But it doesn't just save sinners. You know what the gospel does? It transforms. See, the gospel doesn't just save. The gospel transforms us. It transforms us internally from being without hope and without God to being reconciled to a living God. It transforms us and our identity. If you even listen to that story of Nick, Nick says in the story, I'm not a man who doesn't have arms and legs. I'm a child of God. I'm an ambassador to the king. That's a new identity. So you get pulled into God's family. You become a son and daughter of the king. And this transformation starts to take place. It's a renewal of the mind. It's a transformation of the heart. See, it's at the core level. You can clean up your act. 
You can start giving 10% to your church and start giving some extra stuff. It's all behavior stuff. It's not until you embrace the gospel and the gospel transforms you internally that you begin to bear light of the Holy Spirit in your life and demonstration of his character. And one of the demonstrations of his character is generosity. And when you are for generosity, you demonstrate his character. And when you are for generosity, you demonstrate the gospel. See, being for generosity is being for the gospel. You see it in the New Testament. This commandment gets repeated by the Apostle Paul. It's interesting. In the New Testament, he gives a little bit more elaboration on it than the Old Testament. The Old Testament is two words, never steal, right? In the New Testament, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says this in verse 28. He who's been stealing, cut it out. Must steal no longer. My words. Uh, But must work. Here's the positive. There's negative. Don't steal. Positive, work. Do something useful with your hands. See, your God's a creative God. You go produce something. I don't care if you need the money. You go produce something. Do something. And then he gives the motivation that he may have something to share with those in need. Be generous. This is why you get a job. Not just because you spend a bunch of money on college and time to get a job. <laughs> not just because that's what people do or so you can build up your status so you can have a good portfolio. It's not any of that stuff. You get a job so you can share what a crazy concept. And who does that? Who says to their employer, I think I need a raise. I deserve, you know, 3%, 5%, whatever number it is. Why? I want to give it away. <laughs> who does that? If your boss is shrewd, he'll say, well, how about you give it to the company? We'll just keep it. <laughs> but who does that? Who gets a job so that they can be generous? But see, followers of Jesus Christ do that, and it's part of the reason why the gospel gets spread. It's because of the transformation that's taken place in their lives, and then it gets spread to other people. It's real interesting when you look at this verse in its context. The Apostle Paul has already spent three chapters talking about transformation of the gospel. And you go to chapter 1, and you see that he chose you. Before the foundations of the earth, he chose you. And it wasn't because you were beautiful. It wasn't because you were lovely. It was because of his grace. He chose you to have a relationship with him. And so he adopts you into his family. You become adopted into his family. So now you become, like Nick said, you become his child. You're God's child. You're son or daughter of the king. You have access, according to Ephesians chapter 1, to every spiritual blessing. You don't think you need? There's nobody poor in the kingdom of God, spiritually speaking. Because you have access to everything you need for life and godliness. And now you're a priest, That means you represent God before all the people. You're in his family. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. Can you grasp forgiveness? If so, will you help me? Because that is the biggest struggle I have in Christianity. How can God forgive me of all the past, of the current, and he even forgives me of stuff I haven't done yet, but I'm going to? Wrap your mind around that. He says this in chapter 1. You're forgiven and you're marked and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. How can God come live within you and you not be different? There's a problem if you claim that's true. And the Spirit of God comes and lives within you, and in chapter 2, you're made alive in Christ. You were a bad horror movie before you knew Jesus. You were the living dead. You're made alive in Christ. You're pulled out of that death, that separation from God, and you're given life so that you can do good works. You're not saved by your good works. You're saved by grace. But he's got good works for you to do, chapter 2, verse 10. And those works, it shows that your beauty... And I don't know what you think when you look in the mirror. I don't know what other people have told you, but in God's eyes, you are beautiful to him. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he predestined before the beginning of the world. And he's broken down the barrier wall between Jew and Gentile, and he reconciles people. There's unity. He's talked about all these things in the first three chapters, all this inward transformation that's taken place. And then in chapter four, he tells us, now live this stuff out. Go and do this stuff. Stop lying to each other. Tell the truth. Here's why. Because we're all members of one body. 
In your anger, don't sin because you're going to let the devil get a foothold in your life. That one that used to be a part of his family, he's lying to you and deceiving you and trying to destroy you. Don't do that. And he gives the motive. And then he tells us this one. He who's been stealing, cut that out. Go get a job. Do something useful with your hands. And here's why. So that you can share. So you can be generous. Now, what if we would actually do this? What if we would apply this and be generous? You know what we'd look like? Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches 3,000 people come to Jesus. Mega church, day one. What do they do? They surround themselves around the teaching of the apostle. They have fellowship with one another. They have communion with one another. They break bread together. And you know what they do? They're generous with everybody. And giving as each one has need. Read in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 6 on your own. And you know what God does? He adds to their number daily those who are coming into the kingdom because they see something different. And generosity is a huge, not the only part, a huge part of that. And so what could happen for us if we would be generous? And forget generosity for a minute. What would happen with us if we would just tithe? And forget the argument of gross and net. Let's go with net. It'd be the lower number. After your retirement comes out and taxes and all that stuff. What if evangelical Christians that identify themselves as solid believers, okay? So if you're a visitor at church today, I'm not trying to get your money. Don't write a check today. Okay, if you're new to this church and you think this is to like try and get some more money for the church, that's not the deal. Give the money to a different church, okay? We don't care. I'll tell you some churches, the gospel preaching churches in a minute. Listen, here's the deal. If you go to church three times a month, then you're kind of committed, evangelical Christian. And you'd identify yourself on a survey as very solid or a solid Christian. And you identify with a group of people that they were identified in a book called Passing the Plate. And what they did in this book is they were trying to figure out why is it that evangelical Christians don't give. And that's where the stat comes from for 1%. And they said, here's what would happen if we would actually tithe on our net incomes. And this is outdated because it's a book, right? So it takes a while to get to the printing press and copyright and all that stuff. But they said, in addition to having fully funded churches and all the organizations that already exist and all the programs that already exist, there'd be about $46 billion left to be spent on the gospel. Here's how you could divide that up. And I've got five pages of stats. I'm not going to read them all to you. Maybe I'll post them later or something, but... Here's what some of the things that could happen. We could triple the resources being spent by all Christians on Bible translating, printing, and distribution to provide Bibles in the native languages of the 2,737 remaining people groups currently without Bible translations. The average American has four. And there's 2,737 groups of people, almost 3,000 people groups that never have had a written copy of the Scriptures. And we could give them all copies of the Scriptures. Provide funds to help expand or upgrade uh, church ministry and buildings in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We could build churches all around the world. We could quadruple the total resources being spent by all Christians globally on missions to evangelize the unevangelized. Quadruple the amount of money to reach people who've never heard, never even heard about Jesus Christ and the saving power of Jesus. We gather weekly. We could eradicate polio. Uh, we could fund, and this is just annual giving, by the way. This isn't just like over a year. This is one year. Uh, we could fund a million new clean water, well-drilling well projects per year in the poorest nations, and 25% of the world does not have clean water. That would dramatically improve the health of tens, if not thousands, or hundreds of millions of people per year. We could finance 10,000 comprehensive faith-based programs on HIV, AIDS prevention, education, and medication in the sub-Saharan Africa area. We could provide full resources needed for a global campaign to prevent malaria. Not a big deal here, it's a big deal around the world. Provide food and clothing and shelter to all 6.5 million current refugees in all of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. We could quadruple the current annual operating budget of Habitat for Humanity, building houses for people who have no homes. We could double the current annual operating budget of World Vision. Listen to what they do. They serve a million people 
100 million people, I'm sorry, in 96 nations. We could quadruple their budget, feeding kids and giving them schooling and shelter. Sponsor 20 million needy children worldwide through Christian organizations providing them food, education, health care. Uh, we could fund 5,500 new family counseling areas uh, in here that are Christian-based in the United States for broken families and marital issues. We could fund 5,500 new ones. We could basically transform the economy in America. We could hire 50,000 new trained church-based adults, educators in the Christian church to disciple in theology and discipleship ministries. We could provide church-based jobs training and career counseling up to 100,000 unemployed or welfare-dependent Americans per year. The church could take over these problems of our economy. We could provide research and writing fellowship for 150 of the best Christian scholars per year to work on scientific and humanities scholarships informed by a Christian perspective influencing education. That's one year. And there were five pages. And let me remind you of this. It's not generous giving. That's training wheel-level faith. If Christians would give 10% of their net income, not only would all the churches be funded, all the organizations be funded, all the programs be funded that already exist, in addition to that, we could do those things. And that's just training wheel-level faith. That's just tithing on our net income. That's the starting line, not the finish line. That's what could be. You think the gospel could transform this world if we would actually live out the gospel? See, when you're for generosity, you're for the gospel. And when you're for generosity, you're for God's character. And when you're for generosity, you're for God's glory. He's the one who gets the glory. It's a demonstration of what Jesus Christ did for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He had heaven. He gave it up so that you could have heaven. He had a perfect relationship with his heavenly father. He was forsaken by his father so you could be adopted into his family. He had no sin. He took on our sin debt and paid for our sin when he went to the cross. He gave for us. And when that transforms us, we become givers. You talk about what we could do. What are tangible things for us to do? Well, first of all is this. Embrace the gospel. If you haven't embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm not asking you if you believe in God or attend church or in quote verses. If your heart hasn't been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, then receive what he's offering you. Because until you receive the gospel, it doesn't matter what percentage of your income you give. It doesn't matter what you do to feed hungry people. It's all dirty rags before God. Because what he wants for you is a relationship with him and you to be pulled into his family. Then your heart gets transformed and you're not pulling your bootstraps up anymore. Your heart's being changed. Your desires are changed. Your life is changed. And you start to live out what's been done for you. Though he was rich, he became poor. Crazy generosity. Not $10 million. You're talking about your whole life, your time, your talent, your money. But see, your money shows where your heart's at, according to the scriptures. If you haven't embraced the gospel, you need to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first step. You've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here's what you need to do. Tithe. Start tithing. That's training will level faith. That's the beginning steps of giving. You can't talk about generous giving if you're not tithing. So take baby steps here. You get started in your giving. Give 10% of your income. And I know we're all at different places in our spiritual journey. And I didn't tithe as soon as I became a Christian. I walked in disobedience to this for a period of time. You see the tithe in the Old Testament. You see it before the law. You see it in the law. You see Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, here's the deal. You tithe on all these little things. You should do that. But... You neglect mercy and justice. You didn't get the heart change. And so it's meaningless. So if your heart's been transformed, start tithing. 
If you think I'm saying that, you don't trust me. You think I'm trying to get money from you, trying to get money for this church or whatever the deal is. Here's the deal. Tithe for 30 or 60 days and you give it to another church. Make sure it's a church that preaches the gospel because there's ones in our city that don't. Give it to a church like Providence Baptist Church. Give it to Summit Church. Give it to Hope Community Church. Give it to Journey Church. Give it to Vintage 21 Church. There's a new church, Imago Day Church. You can give it to them. Give it to one of those churches. You can find them online. Do it for 30 or 60 days. Stop robbing God. You start there. Now, if you tithe, now it's fun. Because the tithe is something, it's a discipline you do that should go to your church. Because that's where you get fed. That's your home, right? You don't go buy a burger at McDonald's and pay a Burger King, do you? <laughs> okay, so you, you should give it to a church. And you don't get to control that money. And see, that defeats part of the discipline. The reason why you're giving the money, the tithe, the discipline is to show that that money doesn't control you and you don't have control over that money. You're giving it to God. But when you give above and beyond that, now you're into this almsgiving, now you're into this generous giving. Now you get to decide and that you're only limited... You're only limited by your creativity, and we have a creative God, so you can glorify him through that too. And now think about all the things you could do. I had a friend in our church who's going to be hosting a project here pretty soon called uh, Project 58, and we're going to show this movie about poverty around the world and how actually extreme world poverty could be ended in our generation if we'd be generous. And the movie will come up soon. If you want information, there's a kiosk out there, and you can go to our website and find out stuff about that. But I was asking him, he just saw the movie. I haven't seen it yet. I said, what really impacted you? He said, oh, I was blown away by the, some of the things out there, like in India... There are people that get a debt for $400, and they're just like trying to buy food for their family and stuff, right? They get a debt for $400, they can't pay it back, so they have to go work in these stone quarries as slave laborers, laborers, and they won't pay it off in their entire lifetime. In fact, their kids will have to work in the stone quarry because of their debt. It's like a generational curse. 400 bucks. So for $400, you could pay a generational curse away from a family. And free them from bondage. Talk about demonstrating God's character, who rescued the people out of Egypt so they could walk in freedom. For $400, maybe you don't have $400, $250 a month, you can, I already mentioned at the beginning of the service, you could pay for a woman to be in a safe house who's rescued from sex slavery, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have $250 a month, for $3 here at the Durham Rescue Mission, you can buy a meal for Christmas, for Thanksgiving, buy a meal for somebody for three bucks. Maybe you want to do a monthly thing, regular thing, go to World Vision or Compassion International's website. Somewhere between $35 and $25 a month, you can pay for a child to be able to have a biblical education, to be able to have medical care, to be able to have food, clothing. You can pay for They have thousands and thousands of opportunities all over the world. You can do stuff local, Raleigh Rescue Mission, Durham Rescue Mission. You can do something global. See, it just gets fun, and you're only limited by your creativity when we step in the world of generosity. And remember the stats I shared with you? There's a problem with them. They only happen if everybody obeys. You're not responsible for everybody else. You can only decide what you're going to do before God. And so you don't tithe, start tithing. And then you can step into generosity when you start giving like that. And you can have a huge impact just as one person. You could free a family from bondage. If you pay for somebody to hear about the love of Jesus Christ, go buy some Bibles. Go to the bookstore, buy some Bibles, start giving them away. You can buy them for like 3 or $4 a piece. It's unlimited what you can do. First, you've got to answer the question. Not what I do with $10 million. What will I do with what you've given me now? Are you for generosity? God is. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so thankful that you've poured out your love lavishly upon us, that you've been so gracious, and that while we were yet sinners, your son Jesus died for us. And there may be some here that need to trust your son Jesus Christ today. Experience your generosity. Know your freedom. Know your forgiveness. And Father God, I pray they would place their faith in your son Jesus right now.
And I just want to ask, if you need to trust Jesus Christ, your if you want to experience God's generosity today, would you do me one favor? Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. It takes me a minute. I see somebody raising their hand already. A couple people. I've seen about three. And if you're in theater 14, you can raise your hand as well. I see somebody in the middle. A couple people off to the left. If you want to trust Jesus Christ, will you pray this prayer with me? Father God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. And I pray that you'd forgive me of my sins. I admit my sin to you and that I need a Savior. And I believe that Savior is your son, Jesus Christ. You can pray that right now. And God, I thank you that your son, Jesus, died on the cross for my sins. And I thank you that he rose again from the dead. And I want to embrace his, his life today, the life he offers me. And I want your forgiveness, your generosity. Transform my heart. And Father, I pray for those of us that are followers of your son Jesus already. And I rejoice with each one of them as we rejoice with all of heaven for those who just placed their faith in your son Jesus Christ. And I pray for those of us that are already your followers. God, continue to do a work of transformation in our hearts and our lives. We love you. Use us. In Jesus' name.